This is a person I admire greatly. He has tremendous energy. He is extremely uplifting. The kind of person you absolutely want to roll with, and I could not be more pleased with this conversation. And I've got a new brother in this pursuit of reinvention and transformation. He's a speaker, an author, a performance expert. He is Alan Stein Jr., and he's coming at you right now. Welcome to Season 15 of the Raise Your Game Show. What's up, y'all? I'm Alan Stein Jr., and I really appreciate you tuning in to today's show. Whether on page, on stage, or on the mic, I only have one goal, and that's to add as much value to you as I possibly can. See, if you're listening to this right now, then I know you're looking to improve. You're looking to grow. You're looking to develop. You're looking to evolve. You're looking for an edge. And ultimately, that's why I do this show, to give you an edge. And we're now in our 15th season, and every previous season has had a different flow, a different format, and a different theme. If you're new to the show, I recommend you make the time to check out previous seasons and see which ones resonate most strongly. And if you're a longtime listener, thanks so much for your support and loyalty. This season is all about revisiting my favorite conversations with my favorite podcast host from when I was a guest on their shows. You see, I've had the great fortune to be a guest on almost 400 podcasts in the past six years, and this season will highlight the ones I feel are most impactful. In each of these conversations, you'll learn a little bit more about me, my journey, my perspective, my philosophy, and my approach. These episodes will be full of practical lessons to level up your habits, mindset, focus, and self-awareness. All right, let's get on with today's featured conversation. The following conversation between Alan and Brian K. Wright originally aired on Success Profiles Radio in November of 2023. So the question I usually open with is, did you envision early on that you would be where you are right now? No, I never would have envisioned that I was going to be a professional keynote speaker. Um, but I absolutely envisioned doing something that I found meaningful, doing something that I felt was in service of others and doing something that I was really passionate about. And, and that's kind of been my North star um, ever since I've, I, I left college. So I'm thankful that my, my current vocation uh, checks all three of those boxes. And I don't know exactly where I'll be or what I'll be doing five, 10, 25, 30 years from now, but I can promise you it will still check those three boxes. Absolutely. So what did your path look like prior to your current career? So basketball was my first love, and I fell in love with the game at five years old when my parents signed me up for my first recreation basketball experience. And, and I'm so thankful that here as I'm knocking on the door of 50 years of age, basketball is still a major pillar and a major passion in my life. And I'm really grateful that for a good portion of my professional career, uh, I was able to make a living, but more importantly, build an extraordinary life. Uh, around the game that that I loved. And I did that in the form of being a basketball performance coach. So I was a very dedicated player, was able to play up through the university level. I, I played it at the time. It was called Elon College. It's now Elon University down in North Carolina uh, in the mid 90s. And while I was at Elon, I started to develop an equal love for the training side of the game, for the strength and conditioning and fitness and nutrition and mindset so when I graduated from Elon in the late 90s, I figured what could be better than combining my original love of basketball 
with this newfound love of what we'll call performance training and decided to become a basketball performance coach. And I did that for just under 20 years before I made the very distinct and intentional pivot into what I'm doing now, which is as a corporate keynote speaker and author. Uh, but a good portion of the perspectives and strategies and approaches that I share with corporate audiences from stage and from page uh, were learned through my time in basketball. I was, I was able to work with some really renowned players and really renowned coaches and really picked up on their habits and mindset and focus and disciplines and routines. And that's really what it is that I teach today. Absolutely. We will certainly dive into all of that a little bit later in the show. What did you learn about business from your experience in sports? Well, one thing that I learned is that the secrets, and I say secrets kind of tongue in cheek with a wink, even though we're only doing audio right now, because there really mm -hmm. is no secret. Um, but the, the secrets of high performance have really high utility. They apply in business, they apply in sport, and they apply in just about every area of our life. I mean, one of the reasons I love the work that I have an opportunity to do is it helps me improve in every area of my life. It, it helps me as a father. It helps me as a, as a small business owner. It helps me as a speaker and an author. You know, it, th these principles uh, can be applied just about anywhere uh, at any time by anyone. So, you know, the, the traits that I learned from a player like a Kobe Bryant or a Steph Curry or a Kevin Durant can absolutely be applied to a small business owner or entrepreneur uh, or a teacher or, I mean, any other profession that you can think of. The, the principles of high performance, of leadership, of building winning teams and culture, they, they have no boundaries. Absolutely. So tell us what you think your rock bottom or defining moment has been, because we all at some point in our journey have that moment where we realize, okay, I can't put up with this anymore. This has to change. Uh, I've had several and, you know, from a, a rock bottom standpoint, and I don't, I no longer choose to view it as a rock bottom moment, but rather as kind of a jumping off in a springboard that put me on a different path. Um, the one that immediately comes to mind was, uh, when I decided to get divorced, uh, I was mm -hmm. married for five years. Uh, I've now been divorced for nine. Uh, and my ex-wife and I are the proud parents of 13-year-old twin sons and an 11-year-old daughter. And mm. the divorce was very amicable and very mutual, um, but it put me on a different path. It, uh, it's what, you know, it was the reason that I started going and seeking therapy, uh, going and getting some counseling, um, which was a huge enlightening and liberating experience. It really helped me uh, raise my self-awareness, uh, improve my emotional intelligence, improve my empathy and compassion. It exposed so many blind spots that, that I was unaware that I had at the time. And all of those things, as challenging and as painful as they were at the time to go through, they put me on a much better path. And that path is what's led me to where I am today. And right now, as we're recording this, uh, I have never been happier or more fulfilled. Uh, I've never had better relationships. Uh, I've never had the, the success uh, or significance that I'm experiencing uh, both on and off the stage. Um, so I'm, uh, I've never had the, the level of physical, mental, and emotional fitness that I currently have. Um, so I'm, I'm hitting my stride right now. And the only reason that's happened uh, was because the divorce led me to some therapy, which is what put me on this path. And speaking to that, you did something which I talk about on the show occasionally. You did the inner work, and it's not always fun. It can be very painful, and it could expose 
a lot of the warts, but you have to go through that in order to achieve self-awareness and to see who you really are and how you fit into the world, right? Oh, hundred percent. In fact, um, I don't even use it in the past tense. I'm mm -hmm. still doing the inner work. And to right. be honest, I'll continue to do the inner work uh, till my last day on this planet. For me, it's kind of like physical fitness. You know, physical fitness is not something that you achieve and then plant your flag in the ground and just announce to the world, hey, everyone, I'm physically fit. Because mm -hmm. if you stop doing the things that got you to that level of fitness, like eating right, moving your body and those type of things, then your fitness level will immediately start to decline. And it's the same thing with the inner work, with the emotional intelligence, with the self-awareness. These are things that I'm constantly trying to focus on and to level up. And sometimes I'm, I do a pretty decent job with them and other times not so much. I mean, I still to this day continue to have blind spots. Um, but what's changed is I now have an acknowledgement and a humility that I have blind spots. Now, I don't know what they are. That's why mm -hmm. they're blind spots. But right. I acknowledge that I have them. I know that there are things um, in my current perspective that are tainted and biased and that I'm not seeing the whole picture. I, I know that I don't always have all of the information, especially in interpersonal relationships. And what mm -hmm. I do is I try and insulate myself and surround myself with people that care enough about me to help expose those blind spots and help yeah. show me different vantage points and perspectives so that I can then continue to move forward. But this will be a journey I'll be on for the rest of my life. And to be honest, I wouldn't want it any other way. Absolutely. What do you think is the best action that you wish you would have taken that you didn't? I mean, with hindsight always being 2020, uh, mm -hmm. had I come to some of these enlightened moments earlier in my life, uh, certainly that would have saved me some heartache and probably put me on a better path quicker. But I also acknowledge that it's it's kind of that, you know, that adage that, uh, you know, uh, that when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. Mm -hmm. I also acknowledge that at previous times in my life, when I was a teenager and in my 20s, I mean, I was pretty stubborn. I was pretty judgmental. I was pretty knuckleheaded for lack of a better word. And, mm -hmm. and I know there were times where people tried to reach out and expose, expose blind spots and people tried to, to help me in different ways, but I was too closed off to being open to receiving that type of feedback or coaching. So I don't know that anything could have unfolded in any other way than the way that it has because I wasn't particularly ready. And, and instead of living with the regret of, you know, I wish I would have you know, fill in the blank, uh, instead of in my late thirties, had that happened in my, you know, twenties. Um, instead I look at the reverse and say, my goodness, I am thankful that I came to some of these enlightened moments, uh, in my thirties, because some people don't reach those moments until their sixties or seventies. And mm -hmm. let's be honest, some people never do. So instead right. of, instead of me, you know, playing the what if game, it comes from a real sincere area of gratitude that I'm thankful that I'm on the path I am now, even if it uh, is kind of a little later start than maybe one could have designed. So Alan, let me ask you next, what do you think is the highest value skill that anyone can develop? If I had to narrow it down to one, it would be the ability to make others better. The, the ability to raise the proverbial temperature in the room just by your mere presence, that, that you have both tangible and intangible traits that you can pour into others with intention that get them to be the best versions of themselves. So it's, it's kind of a combination of, of being a great leader, of being a great teammate, of being a great communicator. But if your mere presence 
gets everyone else to perform at a higher level, to me, that's worth its weight in gold. Yeah, that's one of my favorite answers to that question. So thank you for that. I love that. You know, uh, I, I've heard, you know, communication skills a lot. I've heard copywriting. I've heard sales and marketing. But the the ability to raise the temperature of the room, that response reminds me a lot of Michael Jordan because that's what he did. He elevated everyone around him, and it was magical to watch. Yeah, you said it perfectly there. It is the ability to elevate others. And that takes different forms at different times. It's done differently with different people. It's not a one size fits all. It's it's having the emotional intelligence and the awareness to be chameleon-like enough to know what one person on your team needs versus another, or what mm -hmm. one of your children needs versus mm -hmm. one of your other children. It's, it's, it's being a great listener. And I'm saying that in air quotes, to listen to what the environment needs from you, and then you being able to, to pour into that with great intention. Exactly. And that speaks to the idea of maybe the myth of treating all of your team members or even treating all of your children equally because they all have different needs. If you were teaching in a classroom and you had a tortoise and a hare, you wouldn't treat them equally. You would treat them in a way that they expect and need from you, right? Absolutely. It's the difference. You want to treat everybody fairly and mm -hmm. you want to treat everyone with dignity and respect. But as you just said so perfectly, you don't treat everyone equally. If one member of your team or one of your children needs more of your time or mentorship, then you give them more of your time or your mentorship. It's, it's not a, an equal opportunity endeavor. Uh, in fact, I was just talking to a basketball team a couple of weeks ago, and, and I, I said something similar to that and said, you guys know, you know, basketball is not an equal opportunity sport. The players that play more minutes are the ones that add more value. The players that get more shots are the players that are better shooters. And then you can unpack that and say, all right, well, what do I need to do to become a better shooter? Well, you need to practice. You need to mm -hmm. get in thousands and thousands of reps during the unseen hours to earn the right to be a more accomplished shooter. And if you do that, then you'll be able to take more shots and you'll get more minutes. So uh, it's, yeah, this, this concept that everything needs to be equal across the board um, just doesn't work in a team dynamic. Absolutely. So now that we're talking about elite performance, Let's do that. How, how do you define elite performance, first of all, because we have to have our North Star for to talk about this topic, right? Yeah, there's there's two different ways to look at elite performance. I mean, one, you can can use the comparative route and compare your performance or contribution uh, to others, uh, to other metrics, to other standards against other people. And I do think that perspective is helpful. Uh, the other is comparing it to what you're capable of, you know, how how closely are you getting, how close are you getting to your maximum performance or your maximum output or productivity or contribution? You know, I, I, I would believe, and, and I do believe that someone that is getting the most out of their current level of skill sets and mindsets and is maximizing that to the greatest degree, they're performing at their highest level. Now, when you play the comparative game, that might not rank in the top percentile in certain industries. Um, but that part is uncontrollable. And, you know, really the, the best way for me to describe that, and, and this is my own operating system. I'm not in, in implying anyone else needs to live by this. But for me, as a speaker, as an author, as a father, as a small business owner, I have minimal concern with being the best. Mm. I put all of my attention into being my best. And if being my best in each of those areas ends up earning certain accolades or someone wants to say that I like, that's fine. But that, 
that that's outside of my control. What I have much more within my control and sphere of influence is being my best. And I'll let others debate and argue where that ranks among you know, uh, colleagues and peers. But for me, I don't worry about being the best. I just want to be my best. That's such a great, a, a great answer too, because I mean, right now, especially with, you know, LeBron's career getting ready to wrap up whenever that is, but he's much closer to the end of his career than his beginning. A lot of people think that the goat debate is between Michael Jordan and LeBron James. And I, I don't know that's necessarily true. I, I think you have to focus on being your best because comparing elite athletes, while it's fun, it's almost a futile exercise, isn't it? Yeah, because it's like beauty. It's always going to be in the eye of the beholder. I mean, we, first, we have to be able to acknowledge that a question like that is 100% subjective. You can mm -hmm. absolutely bring objective measures in and people try to use their different stats and winning percentages and MVP awards mm -hmm. and they, they try to plead their case. But at the end of the day, it's completely subjective. There are those that believe Michael Jordan is the best of all time. There are those that believe LeBron is. And, you know, mm -hmm. that's the same in any area of life. You know, even in my present vocation as a keynote speaker, you know, I have a handful of keynote speakers that I have so much admiration and respect for. I mean, I put them on my personal Mount Rushmore uh, of speakers that I, I really have learned from, uh, you know, as I try to elevate my craft. But even I can't say they're the best keynote speakers in the business because you might have a completely different opinion. So right. there's nothing wrong with that. So I actually think, as you said, it's kind of a futile endeavor uh, to spend too much time, you know, trying to nail that down where all we need to do is focus on being the best that we're capable of as consistently as possible so that mm -hmm. we can make a maximum contribution to everyone and everything we do. And, and I believe anyone that makes that type of commitment I consider them a high performer. Even if they're the 10th the best-selling salesperson in their organization, if they are making the maximum contribution that they're capable of as consistently as possible, I still consider them a high performer. Absolutely. So let's talk about having a winner's mindset. How do you go about developing that? Well, I love to define it as making the commitment to do the best you can with what you have wherever you are. That's it. I don't think it needs to be any more complicated than that. I believe anyone that does the best they can with whatever they have, wherever they are, uh, that is the foundation of a winner's mindset. And the reason that I love that as my own personal operating system is it automatically eliminates a trilogy of behaviors that I know from firsthand experience will drastically erode and undermine your productivity, your output, your performance, and even your sense of fulfillment. And that trilogy of behaviors is blaming, complaining, in making excuses. And, and it's my belief, and, and this is not cynical, this is simply my observation, that we live in a society where blaming, complaining, and making excuses is rampant. It's rampant in person, it's rampant online, especially via social media. And it's also been my experience that blaming, complaining, and making excuses will never ever improve your situation, make your life better, or move you forward. And yeah. one of the keys to sustained high performance is learning to let go of and untether from the things that don't serve you. So if someone can consciously acknowledge that blaming, complaining, and making excuses does nothing to improve their life or move them forward, then in order for them to continue to elevate their high performance, they need to be willing to untether from the temptation to do those things. And it's not that there aren't valid things for us to 
make excuses about or blame or, or, or complain about. There are very valid things that we can do that. I'm just saying it doesn't help. It doesn't right. move us forward. And we have to let go of things that don't move us forward. It's kind of like walking around, you know, with a 50 pound weight vest on. Everything just becomes harder. Just yeah. walking up two flights of stairs when you have a 50 pound weight vest on becomes more difficult. And yeah. it's been my own personal experience that walking around constantly blaming, complaining, and making excuses only makes everything in life more difficult. And, yeah. uh, you know, I used to be the king of blaming, complaining, and making excuses. You know, we, we talked about earlier in our conversation, you know, some of the changes I would have made in the younger me. And, and that's certainly one that, that, that I, I look back now and say, man, I used to be the master of blaming, complaining, and making excuses. And my life has been so much better and yeah. so much lighter and so much more agile ever since I've let those go. Tell us what you learned about excellence from Kobe Bryant. Well, the number one thing I learned from Kobe, and I learned this the first time I met him in 2007, uh, after watching him do a really early morning workout, he said something to me that fundamentally changed my perspective forever. Uh, I asked him after watching him do some very rudimentary fundamental drills, I asked him why a player of his stature was doing such basic drills. And he said, the best never get bored with the basics. And, and that fundamentally changed the way I saw the world because in that moment, I finally realized, as obvious as this may sound to your listeners, I finally realized that just because something is basic, it doesn't mean it's easy. See, people use those words as if they're synonyms, as if they're interchangeable, but they don't mean the same thing. What it takes to be an elite high performer is very basic. Now, mm -hmm. what it takes to be an elite high performer is anything but easy but it's important not to confuse those two. I've heard you say uh, on previous interviews that Steph Curry is so great because he forgets the previous missed shot and does not affect what he's doing next. How do we train ourselves to think like that? Yeah, that's called the next play mentality. It's, it's called having strong bounce back. It's, it's saying that no matter what just happened, I have the mental toughness to refocus the lens on what's about to happen next, what's right in front of me, that I don't want to drag the, the negative energy or the failure from the past into the present moment. So if I've missed my last five shots, uh, I don't want to drag that energy into shooting my sixth shot. You know, if, if I had five sales calls this morning and the first four did not go as well as I had hoped or as well as I'd preferred, I'm starting that fifth sales call with a clean slate with the same optimism that I, I had at the beginning of the day. And, and once again, this is a very basic construct, but very, very difficult to do. So Alan, let me ask you next, why do athletes like Kobe Bryant and Michael Jordan thrive in pressure moments while others shy away from it? It's all in their perspective. It's how they view it. You know, elite high performers um, view these quote unquote pressure situations as opportunities. And they feel very prepared for the opportunities because they've put in the work during the unseen hours to deserve the right to come through when, you know, the, the lights and the cameras are rolling. It's other people um, that, that are the ones that increase the pressure or at least the perceived pressure by not viewing it as an opportunity. So uh, guys like the Kobe Bryant and Michael Jordan, I mean, they thrive for those moments. They live for them because they've put in the work to put themselves in a position to star where they are when those things happen. Yeah, that's absolutely, uh, uh, that's wonderful. It's, it's absolutely accurate. So how does someone learn to be present? I know this is one of your favorite topics. 
So being present, you know, the, the short definition of that is just learning how to be where your feet are. It's learning how to make sure that your mind, body, and spirit, and all of your emotional faculties are in alignment, and you're not being distracted by the past, and you're not anxious or consumed about what may or may not happen in a perceived future, but you have an acceptance of what's just right in front of you. And, you know, the, the more elongated breaking down of being in the present moment, uh, one, we covered right before the break about the next play, you know, that, that refocusing the lens on the next play and not worried about what just happened. Uh, another component is refocusing the lens on what you have control over, which I'm of the belief the only two things we have 100% control over 100% of the time is our own effort in our own attitude. And then it's also refocusing the lens on the process. Uh, we all have desired outcomes. We all have goals and things we're trying to achieve. Um, but elite high performers can stay locked into the present moment because they focus much more on the process, on the steps, on the daily behaviors and mindsets that they need and, and are less consumed with the actual North Star or the goal. And uh, if you can constantly refocus and recalibrate your lens on the next play, on what you have control over and on the process, uh, and you can be where your feet are, then, then you are doing everything you can to be in the present moment. That is perfect. So where do you think stress comes from? Is it uh, when you're focused on things you can't control? That is certainly a big portion of it. You know, the, the best definition, at least the one that resonated most with me, I first heard from Eckhart Tolle, who's, for lack of a better term, kind of a modern day philosopher. And, mm -hmm. and he said, uh, stress is the desire for things to be different than they are in the present moment. That's it. Full stop. And that really resonated with me because it, it finally clued me in that stress in and of itself is not necessarily caused by external circumstances and events and what people say and what people do. Our stress is caused by our resistance to those things. It's our desire for circumstances or events to be different. It's our desire that we wish someone would have said or did something differently. It's our desire to have our preferences met. And is if you're willing to have an acceptance or surrender to reality and what's actually happening, uh, even if it's unpreferred, even if it's not what you'd like to see happen, but having an, an acceptance of it, that's what will allow you to lower stress in the moment. And this doesn't mean that, that you accept injustices, you accept inequalities, you accept the bad things that are going on in the world. It's merely acknowledging that these things are happening. It's not my preference. And I want to be incredibly thoughtful and intentional with my response to these things instead of it just being a knee-jerk reaction of, wishing and hoping and wanting things to be different because anytime you fight against reality, that's a fight you'll lose 100% of the time. Absolutely. And a lot of people talk about managing stress or avoiding it, but you advocate using it. So how do we do that? Yeah. Using stress. I mean, it can be an incredibly powerful fuel, just like many of the um, unpreferred uh, emotions that we can feel. We can use all of those in a way uh, that actually serve us. So, you know, stress is simply having the acknowledgement or when you're, you feel that you're in a stressful situation, that the liberating and empowering part that can really propel you forward is just acknowledging that, okay, what's currently happening is not my preference, but I can't change reality. But what I can do is be much more thoughtful and intentional in my response to this. And, you know, an example would be sitting in traffic. Uh, I think most human beings would agree that 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 can elevate one's current stress level, but it's not the traffic in and of itself that causes the stress. 
It's your desire for all of the cars to get out of your way that's causing your stress. So if you can accept that and simply say, you know, I'd prefer there not to be traffic, but there is. I don't mm -hmm. always get my preferences. So instead of white knuckling the steering wheel or honking my horn or cursing or giving somebody the finger, all of which will increase my stress, mm -hmm. instead I'm going to take a deep breath and fill in the blank. I'm going to uh, make a phone call to a friend or a loved one. I'm going to enjoy some quiet time and some stillness. Uh, I'm going to listen to an uplifting song or maybe listen to a podcast or a radio show like this. I'm going to like, there's other choices and responses you can make that will lower your stress in that moment. But no matter which one you choose, the traffic isn't going to change. Those cars aren't getting out of your way. So I've learned over time and continuing to do the self-work to, to try and take the latter approach. Uh, because I certainly took the previous approach uh, in my younger days and it got me nowhere except upset, angry, and feeling constantly stressed out. Yeah, absolutely. So we know that true champions focus on the process more than the results. So how do we detach from the result? Because that's what a lot of us want to focus on is did we get it done or not? But that's not always the true test of the, of the scoreboard, is it? No, and, and the results are important. And I've, yes. I have no problem with people having a North Star or having a goal or something they're trying to achieve because I think that helps provide clarity and direction for the actual process. But what I want folks to understand intimately is that the best way to achieve that goal or that North Star is through the process. That by, you know, if you have, let's take a sales professional um, who, whose goal is to sell X number of widgets by the end of the year. Well, that's great. And that's going to provide a framework of clarity and direction. But instead of waking up every day worrying about selling, let's just say arbitrarily 100 widgets this year, instead if they focus on what can I do today that will inch me closer to making that, that hitting that goal. You know, if I break it down and say, all right, well, that's 25 widgets per quarter, you know, break that down per month, per week, per day, and then say, all right, what are some behaviors or some approaches or some strategies that will get me closer today? And if you can have that approach 365 days a year and every single day you, you hit these many goals and these many steps and you use this approach, then the, the quote unquote scoreboard will just take care of itself. Same thing yeah. with, uh, you know, the NBA season just started at, at the time of our conversation. And, you know, most teams have the goal of winning the NBA championship. Well, mm -hmm. that's a fantastic goal. But you can't win an NBA championship in November. What you can do is you can take steps towards that NBA championship. Mm -hmm. You personally, as an individual player, can do everything in your power to make sure you show up mentally, physically, and emotionally as the best version of yourself so that you can make a maximum contribution to every practice in every game. And then if you can have the type of influence and impact that get everybody else in the team to do the same, and yep. you guys do that consistently between November and June, then you put your team in the best position to be successful and hit that goal. Yeah, absolutely. And speaking of winning, you need to identify those key metrics that are most likely to get you to where you want to go. I know you've got examples of this. I know I read uh, Dr. Tom Osborne's book that he put out in the late 90s toward the end of his coaching career in Nebraska. And he had a set of metrics that he wanted his team to achieve on offense, on defense, on special teams. And he knew that if his team met and graded out favorably enough on those metrics, he knew he had a, a team that could contend for a conference championship. I'm sure you've seen examples like this too in basketball. 
Absolutely. And, and to Tom Osborne, Coach Osborne's point, then every single thing that they did in the Nebraska program was based on improving those metrics. Yes. Everything they did in practice, everything they did in workouts, everything they did in film breakdown, everything they did during the game was designed to hit those metrics because he knew if they hit those metrics consistently, the scoreboard would take care of itself. That that if they did those things, so he didn't have to talk about winning or championships or banners or trophies. He could focus on doing those handful of specific things because if his team could execute those things at a high level, then the winning would just take care of itself. And same thing, you know, going back to the sales example. This is why I love that that sports and business, you know, have so many commonalities. You know, what are the things that lead to selling more widgets? You know, it's relationship building, it's promotion, you know, putting content out on social media. It's, it's, you know, you need to decide what are those things and then you need to do those things. So, you know, if, if you've broken it down and say, you know, I need to post three pieces of new social content every day and I need to make six outward bound sales calls every day. And I need to have two meetings with either prospective customers or current customers every day. And if you do that every single day, if you've measured the metrics correctly, then you'll hit that hundred, you know, hundred widget sales goal that you had. In fact, mm -hmm. you'll probably blow it out of the water. So don't worry so much about the hundred focus on doing what you need to do today and then get some good sleep tonight and wake up and refocus that lens again. What do mm -hmm. I need to do today? And mm -hmm. the mistake a lot of people make is, you know, they have a really good Monday and, and they exceeded all expectations and metrics on Monday. And then they just allow the cruise control to set in for the rest of the week. Whereas mm -hmm. a high performer says, I had a great day on Monday, but I'm even going to try to beat that on Tuesday. And I'm going to try to beat that on Wednesday. I'm not going to rest on what I did yesterday. I'm going to go all in and try and beat that. And, and that's really doubling down and, and focusing on the process. Can't believe how this is going. It's going so fast. I want to talk about visualization. This will probably spill over into the next segment, but how important is that for you and how can we use that to improve our performance? Visualization, it's vital. And most importantly, we need, to, and, and as obvious as this may sound, a lot of people do the opposite. We need to visualize the things we want to happen, not the things we don't. Uh, using basketball's analogy, since that was where I spent a good portion of my professional career, you know, the, the last thing you want to be thinking if you're shooting a free throw is don't miss or, you know, don't shoot it short because you're actually thinking and you're giving energy to what you don't want to happen. Instead, you need to take a deep breath and say, I've earned the right to hit this shot because I have made hundreds of thousands of free throws in empty gyms during the unseen hours. So I'm just going to go nice and easy over the front rim swish. That's what you need to be thinking. Think about what you want to happen, not what you don't want to happen. So Alan, we were talking about visualization before the break and how we can use that to improve our performance. I know that you do public speaking and when you speak, you want to see the room the day before, don't you? Oh, every single time. I mean, part of my process and, and please know that I've learned and I've known this from a very young age that my standard operating system as a human being, I love structure. I love routine. I love consistency. So I try and create processes and systems for everything in my life. I try not to approach anything haphazardly. Now, I try to maintain a level of improvisation and a level of spontaneity. I don't want to ever be rigid, but I have processes and systems. And one of my primary speaking processes is I always arrive on site for an in-person speaking engagement the day before. Uh, I do that, one, to put the client or the meeting planner's mind at ease that I'm on site and they don't have to 
worry about me missing the talk because of, of a late flight. Uh, I also do that so that I can get a really good peaceful night's sleep and be fully prepared the next day. But one of the main reasons I do it is because I want to be able to see the venue, see the mm -hmm. room, see the stage, see the setting that I'm going to be performing in the night before, uh, mm -hmm. because that helps uh, with my visualization process. And that helps me bring it to life. Um, there's a quote I heard very early in my career, be there before you get there. Yeah. That, that if, you know, if, if you're, you know, you have to be ready because there might not be time to get ready. So if I can step on, on the stage, literally and figuratively, 24 hours before there's an actual audience there and I can walk through my paces and I can get a feel for what the room's going to look like, then that helps bring my visualization to life when I'm picturing myself on stage, killing it the next day. So yeah, anytime I can be there before I get there, it yeah. helps put my mind at ease and it absolutely helps me level up my performance. Absolutely. I've got a, a book writing client. I helped him write his book. It's called The Power to Speak Naked. And he talked about authentic speaking authentically from a place of authenticity and tips to get started public speaking if you've never done it before. He talks about visiting the room prior to the to the event and he touches the walls. He touches every single chair in the room. It's his way of owning the space before he gets there. Psychologically, I think it really, really helps. So I love the idea that you see it the, day, the night before, the day before, and you find your way to own the room in your own way. That's great. So let's ask next, what are some of the top characteristics of the best and most impactful leaders you've ever encountered? Three jump out immediately. And the cool part is we've kind of covered these a little bit in our conversation so far, which I'm thoroughly enjoying, by the way, but I'm going to double stamp on some of them. And, yep. and that's because it's important for your listeners to know one of my pillars of my operating system as well is that repetition is not punishment. Uh, mm -hmm. repetition is the mother of all skill and is the oldest form of, of, of learning on the planet. And that's not going to change. So if we've talked about it previously in this conversation and I say it again, now it's because it's that important. And I, I think three components, uh, lead to not only high performance, but the most effective leadership on the planet. First is the lesson I learned from Kobe Bryant, that the best never get bored with the basics, that the best leaders on the planet are constantly trying to up-level and refine and elevate uh, a handful of basic traits and basic fundamentals. Number two is the best performers and leaders on the planet learn to blend confidence with humility. They have, they've earned the right to be confident because they've put in the work during the unseen hours, but they brush that confidence with enough humility that keeps them open to feedback keeps them open to continuing to be coached by others, keeps them open to acknowledging that no matter how good they are, they can still get better. And then the third pillar, which we've also talked about, is they really embrace the process. The, they acknowledge that as leaders and as high performers, they have goals, they have North Stars, they have things they're trying to accomplish and achieve, but they know the secret to that is in the day-to-day, -day. it's in the process, it's in what's right in front of them. And they have razor sharp pre precision in staying focused on that. And if, if you can embrace the basics and you can embrace the blend of confidence and humility and you can embrace the process and you do those things consistently during the seen and the unseen hours, then you are well on your way to being a very influential and impactful leader and an unbelievably high performer. Absolutely. And for those of us who run teams, meetings can frequently be too long or unproductive. And you talk about running a meeting like a coach uses a timeout during a game. Tell us about that. 
Well, you know, by design, a basketball coach, you know, they have a finite number of timeouts. And some mm -hmm. of those are 30 second timeouts. Some of those are full timeouts and they need to use them strategically and, and they need to maximize every second of that timeout. You know, if it's a pivotal time during a game, 30 seconds is not a lot of time. So they've got to cut out all of the fluff, trim all of the fat and be very direct in those 30 seconds. And, and I think business leaders uh, should follow that same mantra. You know, they should pretend that they only have a finite number of meetings per quarter or per month or per week or per day. And they should be incredibly have high discernment in what they plan to cover during those meetings. They mm -hmm. should make sure that the only people invited to those meetings are the people that are necessary. Think of a mm -hmm. basketball timeout. You know, uh, the fans aren't included in that. If we're watching a game on TV, you know, with minor exception, we're not included in the huddle. The only people in that huddle in that timeout are the ones that are required to be there. Uh, so the rest of us can, you know, use the restroom or go get a beverage or do something during that timeout. So business leaders should do the same thing. And, and I think most importantly, when you do this, you show your team how much you respect their time and value their time. It has been my experience at the corporate level that people set 60-minute meetings for something that could be accomplished in 30 minutes. They mm -hmm. set 30-minute meetings for something that should be accomplished in 15 minutes. They set 15-minute meetings for something that actually could have been an organized email. And when you do that too often, um, your team realizes that you're just meeting to meet, that you're not really accomplishing anything and you're wasting their time. And, and in essence, the unconscious message you send when you waste someone's time is that you don't respect them and you don't respect their time. And I know as a business leader, that's not your intent, but you have to realize something I learned very early in my coaching career. It's not what you say, it's what they hear that matters most. So what you say is we need to have this 30 minute meeting. It's important. But if the meeting is all fluff and that person who's there didn't even need to be there, what they hear is Alan doesn't value my time. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So why is embracing change so important and how do we do that? Well, change is constant. I mean, whether you like change or you don't like change, it's a coming. And so you might as well learn to lean into it. And, you know, resisting change is just like we were talking about earlier about resisting stress. I mean, it's, it's futile. Change is coming and it's coming in all shapes and forms. And we, we have, you know, uh, uh, initiated change, which is the change that we choose to create, um, which, you know, is the type of change that I want folks to really lean into. Uh, and they need to realize, you know, uh, one of my old favorite quotes of all time is if nothing changes, well, nothing changes. So if there's any part of your life that you wish you could level up, you have to acknowledge that if you keep doing what you've been doing, you will keep getting what you've been getting. And mm -hmm. if you don't like what you've been getting, you need to change what you've been doing. Absolutely. How do we break bad habits and create new ones? Well, this, I've done entire workshops on this. So I'm going to give you kind of the overview, the quick cliff notes. The, yep. the first thing you need to do is you need to identify one specific behavior that you believe needs to be changed. So it's either something you need to start doing or it's something you need to stop doing. And you, you, you don't want to pick a, a variety of different things. Another one of my all-time favorite quotes is if you chase two rabbits, they both get away. So you need to figure out which rabbit you're going to go after and grab that sucker by the tail. Same thing with, with changing a behavior. Instead of trying to change five things at once, let's get razor sharp precision on one. Then the second step is you need to make a commitment to doing that thing or not doing that thing if it's something you're going to stop. And you need to do that for 66 days. Uh, I've seen a ton of research out there on habit building, but the most reliable research that I've come across 
says that it takes approximately 66 days to change you know, a, a rather average behavior. Uh, now, there's nothing magical about that 66, but it's just a good rule of thumb. And if you're like me, uh, you like to print out a paper calendar, get yourself a big red Sharpie, and at the end of every day that you did that thing that you said you were going to do, or stop doing that thing you said you would stop doing, you put a big red X on the calendar. And it's a very satisfying feeling, by the way. But mm -hmm. your goal is to get uh, as many red Xs as you can over the next 66 days, or at least try and get as close to 66 red Xs in a row as you can. And Absolutely. then the third step is you need to keep the, uh, the spotlight of accountability on. You need to recruit an inner circle of people, whether it's your spouse, your adult children, your business colleagues, your neighbors, your friends, whatever, but you need to ask them to hold you accountable, to check in with you every single day to see if you're doing that one thing that you said you were going to do. And if you make a commitment to have razor sharp precision and do one thing, you make a commitment to yourself to do it for as many days as you can out of 66 or get as close to 66 days in a row as you can, and you have people that you know love and care about you and they hold you accountable, there's a good chance you will see that behavior change you know, within two months. And then once you yep. do that, then you pick a new habit to try and change. You wanted to tell a David Lee Roth story. Oh, so yeah, here's a great way to put a red bow tie on this. I think everyone has heard um, that that myth about uh, the the green M and M's in the the green room of a bowl, uh, you know, at the at the in the green mm -hmm. room of uh, a famous rock star, and that how pretentious and entitled they are that they need to have a certain color of M and M removed from the bowl. Well, come to find out that was not done out of entitlement or pretentiousness. Um, David Lee Roth, the lead singer for Van Halen, he would put that deep inside their contract because he used it as a test to whether or not the operations group who was going to help put on the event paid attention to detail because he, he was doing pyrotechnics and he was, you know, he was being swung from huge harnesses off stage. Like back in the eighties, David Lee Roth was doing some pretty uh, cutting edge stuff. A lot of this stuff could be deemed unsafe and he needed to make sure that the people um, providing the operations were attending to detail. So he knew if he walked into the green room and immediately looked at the bowl of M&Ms, if it met the specifications he put in the contract, then he knew that that group was paying attention to detail and he could put his mind at ease. If he walked in and they hadn't done that because they hadn't read that part of the contract, then he would immediately, the, the contract would be null and void. The group would still have to pay him, but he would not take the stage because he didn't trust that everything was going to be safe or that everything was done correctly. So it was not done out of pretentiousness or entitlement. It was actually an incredibly clever way to see if other people pay attention to detail. Well, that's it for this episode. I hope this conversation helped you raise your game. If you're interested in learning how I can deliver messages like this to your team or at your next event, please visit allensteinjr.com and hit the contact tab in the upper right corner.